Eric, 37 years old, believed he had everything. He had grown up in the church but had walked away from Christ because he thought he was useless, an American. Uh, and he had everything he thought he wanted. He had a wife, he had three kids, he was making over a million dollars a year. And yet he continued to purchase things beyond his price range, even making that kind of a money. And he was a real estate agent in 2007 as the American economy entered into the recession of 2008 and 9. Everything about his life collapsed. The financial calamity caused his wife to issue that she would divorce him and walk away. And she was going to take the kids and go back and live with her parents, which was a state away. And he realized in that moment that everything he thought he had was disappearing, was gone, and that he was about to have nothing. He was about to hit bankruptcy. His wife was leaving him with the kids. He was going to lose his home. His livelihood had plummeted to zero in the recession. And he said, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. He says, so in that bleak moment, I did something I should have done long before that I turned to Jesus. I just simply cried out to him and said, where are you? Where are you in this mess of mine? He said Jesus spoke very clearly to him as he opened the word, reminded him that he was there, but that he'd walked in disobedience and not obedience, and that this was hand, his hand of discipline to bring him back to himself. Eric said in that moment he repented, went to a local godly church, and began to follow Christ again. He said when his wife issued the divorce papers to him, he prayed, he wrote out a prayer of reconciliation, pleading with God to save his marriage. And he said, miraculously, through a number of means in 2010, through the recession, after his wife was leaving him, he was reconciled with his wife and children. And he said, in all of that, his business was restored. And he said, you may think that that's what matters. But he said, what matters, I've learned, as he closed off his testimony, is that Jesus' redeeming hand was at work in my life all along. And he would do whatever it takes to bring me into a fuller relationship with himself. That that's what he would do. As we come to the end of the book of Genesis, we see God's redeeming hand through the entire book. And as Paul did so well the last two weeks, talking about how the last 25 chapters or so are about God being the God of first Abraham and then Isaac and now Jacob. That's what you see all through Scripture. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And though in the last chapters we have a great deal of focus on Joseph, the word is still very clear that it's the God of Jacob. And so as you close off Genesis, you'll see an incredible focus on the life of Jacob. Jacob had to learn a lot. I mean, Jacob lied, deceived his father to gain his birthright. Married two wives and took on two concubines. So in essence, married to four women against what God would want. He deceived his father-in-law Laban. In the middle of the night, he just ran with his wives and concubines and children and Laban's grandchildren and fled. Then when his brother greets him and he's afraid and he starts off by sending everyone else first and he's at the end, God meets with him, wrestles with him. He's already afraid to meet his brother Esau. And now he's walking to meet Esau with a limp. Esau embraces him, shows him forgiveness, loves on him. 
Esau says to him, come and follow me and, and live with me. I'll, I'll leave some of my men to protect you on the way. And Jacob says, no, 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 like I'll join you. I don't need your men. We'll be there shortly. And he lies and goes somewhere else and lives in a neighboring part. And then he loses his son, Joseph. He thinks to death. And now he's learned that his son, Joseph, is alive. And so we find this in Genesis 47, beginning at verse 1, a number of passages of Scripture today. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, my father and brothers and their flocks and herds and everything they own have now come from the land of Canaan and they are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh asked his brothers, what is your op occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. And they also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now please let your servants settle in Goshen. Just pause there for a moment. Goshen would be like Etobicoke to Toronto. It's kind of part of it, but it's really a suburb of it, and it's beside it. And it would have been actually a bit of travel. You'll find that out later as we kind of go through this. Jacob doesn't really know all of Joseph's kids, though he meets them. When he sees them again, he has to be reminded of who they are, not only because of his sight, but they wouldn't see each other that often. Right? There would have been time between this. So it's a neighboring township or a neighboring city, if you will, a suburb of e Egypt, but a large one. And so that's where they are. And the men are just honest. Shepherds weren't well-liked in Egypt. It was considered kind of a dirty, demeaning task to be a shepherd. Herdsmen were more welcomed, um, although they needed shepherds in Egypt. But here Pharaoh's kind. Pharaoh says to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father, your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen, and, uh, and if you know any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. He says, if you have any of your brothers that are really good at what they do, let them take care of my livestock as well. Then Pharaoh brought his father Jacob in, presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, how old are you? Now note that. Twice here in this passage, Jacob is going to bless Pharaoh. Why is that important? Pharaoh believes that God is with Jacob. Uh, sorry, is with Joseph. Joseph has been able to interpret his dreams. Seven years of good plenty followed, exactly like Joseph said. Now they're in years of famine. Egypt has plenty. Egypt is not only able to buy all of the land of the Egyptians and all of the livestock of the Egyptians, then able to buy all of the Egyptians. They actually buy them. But they are also able to provide for neighboring lands, so much produce, so much grain, so much wealth has been stored up. And so Pharaoh believes that God is with Joseph, and this is his dad. And so if God is with Joseph, God certainly must be with his father. And so he offers Pharaoh a blessing, a blessing from God Almighty. Then, uh, and Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my pilgrimage are 130. He says, I'm 130 years old. My years have been few. He says, I, I, in terms of the span of the earth, I, I have lived a short time. But they have been difficult. They do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers who lived longer. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So he blesses him twice. But he does say, my years have been few. Like when you think of the span of life of, of my father and grandfather and even others. And he says, the length of time the earth has been here. He says, my, my, my life is short, but it has been difficult. Some of that difficulty, Jacob knows he's brought upon himself. 
And he's able to be honest about that and just say, this is what it looks like. And he blesses Pharaoh again. So Joseph settled his fathers and brothers in Egypt, gave them the property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramses, as Pharaoh directed. God also provided his father and brothers and his father's household with food according to the number of their children. Now I want you to note this. God's sovereign, providential hand that led Joseph's brothers to sell him and put him into a pit, then into Potiphar's house, then into prison, now in Pharaoh's palace, allows for Joseph's brothers to what? And family. To be able to receive food from Pharaoh's house at no cost. They're able to just receive the food and there is no cost to them. But if you follow the next verses, I'm not going to read them, verses 13 and following in the passage, all of Egypt comes. First, Joseph collects all of their money. They come to him and say, we have no more money. Then Joseph collects all their livestock for food so they don't starve. Then they have no, no livestock left, and they come to Joseph. They say, all we have left is our bodies and land, and Joseph says, we'll take that too. And so Pharaoh, for his kindness to Joseph's family, ends up owning all of everyone and every bit of land in Egypt. That's where, when you read accounts of the pharaohs, I mean, the pharaohs become these, quote-unquote, small-g, God-like men. That's what they're looked upon as. Because Pharaoh simply owned everything. Owned everything. And Joseph, remember, is second in charge. Joseph is second in charge. So Joseph established it as a law concerning the land in Egypt, verse 26, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the land of Goshen, they acquired property there. They were fruitful, increased greatly in number. So you have here the author, Moses, setting us up for what's about to transpire, the exodus and the slavery of the Egyptians. They're increasing in number. They're growing in number in a foreign land, not the land God had set aside for them. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die... He called his son Joseph to him. If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh. Promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Don't bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped and leaned on top of his staff. He says, bury me in the land, the promised land, the land of Abraham and Isaac. Bury me in the land that God has told us is ours. Don't bury me here. Joseph says, I will. He worships him. I'll read this in a moment, but this is one of the two aspects of Jacob's life that's mentioned in Hebrews 11. This worshiping of God in this moment, Jacob leaning on his staff and worshiping God, is noted by the author of Hebrews, is noted in the hall of faith. That Jacob worships. He just pauses and worships God in this moment. As this is his God at work in his life. And he's thankful for his faithfulness. Thankful for his providential care. Sometime later Joseph was told your father is ill. So he took his two sons Manasseh and Ephraim along with him. When Jacob was told your son Joseph has come to you. Israel, that's Jacob, rallied his strength, sat up on his bed. 
Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me. He said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give you this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Now then, your two sons born in Egypt before I came to you, here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them are yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning from Paddan, and my sorrow for Rachel died in the land of Canaan, while we were there on the way, a little distance from Ephra, so I buried her there beside the road to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob, in his dying days, remembers his love for Rachel. He married Leah first, then Rachel, also the two concubines. He would have been considered in their culture as married to them. That's why they would have been treated very differently than the other maidservants as he had children with them. Same with Abraham and Hagar. This is just the way the world worked then. And so in this moment, he's remembering his love for Rachel, who, of course, gave birth to Joseph. And he wants to bless Joseph's two sons that were born in Egypt before he got there. And so he's going to offer Joseph a double portion. And in essence, what Jacob's doing here is he's adopting Joseph's two older sons as his own, as part of God's plan, as part of God's plan. He then calls all of his children together as he's going to explain in this next chapter, that he's going to die, chapter 49. And as that occurs, he offers blessing on some, he offers cursing on others, but I want you to note that it's all caught up in this caption from the previous chapter, verse 3, that God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me and said to me, I am going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I will make you a community of peoples, and I will give this land an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Jacob, as he looks back and reflects on his life, the sin he has committed, taking matters at times into his own hands, he remembers the faithfulness of God. And that should encourage us. How many times do we take matters into our own hands? How many times do we act as if God had not promised something or as if he won't be faithful to his word? How many times do we act out our own when we don't honor him with our wealth because we have bought too much stuff and we have bills to pay? So we somehow come under the assumption it's okay to dishonor God with the wealth he's given us. We're going to take matters into our own hands when it comes to figuring out how to navigate a relationship with someone, though God has been clear in his word that you are to forgive as he forgives. But we're going to somehow navigate this our way, do what we want. And we do this all the time. All the time, we somehow take matters into our own hands, whether it's around a sin issue, around bitterness, around gossip, around you, you just name it. And we act as if God hasn't spoken and God hasn't offered a way, and then we take matters in our own hands to do something. But I pray we grow in grace like Jacob did, we see the hand, God's providential hand in our lives. And I pray we see this in our younger years, but if not, definitely in our older years. Or we can look back and say, God promised. He's been faithful. And he is God. If you read later through Jacob's then walking through his 12 sons, 
He curses some. He blesses some. And he just kind of, kind of neutralizes some. Just kind of, you know, not good or bad. You were just there. Like, that's just written forever. I mean, we sometimes don't realize, like, that's written forever in Scripture. Right? Here are my kids. Here are my kids that were just kind of, uh. Here are my kids that curse, cursed be your anger, Simeon and Levi. Here are my kids that are, man, God's Judah, king. Judah, king. You're going to be the king. From your tribe, the kings will come, Judah. And he just blesses some. I'm not suggesting you should do this upon your deathbed. It's probably not good for your family. But this is how God led him. And as God even was having him bless Joseph's two kids, he was blessing Ephraim with the blessing of the firstborn when Manasseh was the firstborn. If you read through the text, Joseph tries to correct him and Jacob says, no, this is the way God wants it. Because he's seen the sovereign hand of the Lord and he's followed him. So he gives these instructions about his 12 sons. Then he says, I'm about to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave of the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave of the field of Maphla near Mamre in Canaan, which Abraham bought along with the field as a burial place for Ephron the Hittite. And that's where they brought him. Jacob finishes giving these instructions to his sons. He draws up his feet into his bed. He breathes his last, and he's gathered to his people. And that's where you find Hebrews 11. By faith, Jacob, verse 21, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. By faith, Joseph went, uh, when his end was near, spoke about the descendants of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. And so here you have Jacob mentioned the hall of faith and Joseph mentioned the hall of faith, both about their deaths and their belief that even as they were perishing and didn't see the promises of God in their fulfillment, that God was faithful and going to fulfill them. That is a great deal of faith. Do you have enough faith that even on your deathbed, if the things that God has promised haven't come to fruition, that you can say, these are still promises that God is going to bring to fruition, even though they may be upon my children or grandchildren. That's what he said. I may not see them, but I believe God will still powerfully bring these promises to fulfillment. So Joseph throws himself, this is chapter 50, verse 1, Upon his father, weeps over him and kisses him. And Joseph directs the physicians in the service to embalm his father Israel. So the physicians embalm him, take a full 40 days. And the Egyptians mourn for him for 70 days. So they've already mourned, right, for like a month. And then when the days of mourning have passed, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and says, If I have found favor, will you let me go and bury my father where he has asked me to go? Verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father. All of Pharaoh's officials accompanied him the dignitaries of the court, and all the dignitaries of Egypt, besides all the members of Joseph's household and his brothers and all the belongings of his father's household. Only their children and their flocks and their herds were left in Goshen. Chariots and horsemen also went up with him. It was a very large company. Pharaoh granted him a Pharaoh's funeral for a stranger, a foreigner. I mean, it shows God's providential care all through this. When they reached the threshold of the floor of Atad, Near the Jordan, verse 10, they lamented loudly and bitterly, and there Joseph observed a seven-day period of mourning for his father. And when the Canaanites who lived there saw the mourning 
at the threshing floor of Atad, they said the Egyptians are holding a solemn ceremony of mourning. I say to people all the time that even though Joseph and his family had mourned for a month, when they get to the place where they're going to bury their father, I say the committal of the graveside is the hardest place. There's no place harder than this. It may feel very final at a funeral home, but when you get to the graveside, it feels like it's over. And I prepare people through COVID. I've done numbers of funerals now, months or even a year after people have died. And normally they're just graveside ceremonies. And I warn the families ahead of time. I just say to them, hey, I want you to be prepared that when we get to the graveside, you will mourn again. They'll be like, well, Dwayne, it's been a year. I'm like, I just want you to be prepared how emotional it is when you drop an urn into the ground, lower a casket into the ground, like whatever it is we're doing at the graveside. I want you to be prepared for the fact that it's going to be incredibly emotional. And it is. And so Joseph experiences all those motions again. Now when Joseph's brothers saw that their dad was dead, they think, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us? I mean, he's the second most powerful man in the world. They've just watched all of the Egyptian officials come to bury their dad, and they're like, okay, like, uh, Joseph is really powerful, and we threw him in a pit, and this is not going to be good. I mean, if Joseph wants vengeance, we're dead. And they all know it. So they come up with a lie. And they say, we're going to say to Joseph that your father sent these instructions before he died. I mean, how do you verify that one? Dad's dead. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers your sins, the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Brothers, do you not know who I am? Have you not seen my character over these years that dad lived here? Brothers, do you not understand what God has done in my life? His brothers came to him. They threw themselves at them. He said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in place of God? You intended me harm, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is being done to save many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke to them kindly. Joseph had spent 13 years as a slave and in prison from the time he was 17 till the time he was 30. And instead of wanting vengeance against the people who put him there, instead of wanting to be vindicated, he saw it as God's providential plan to save his family. You know that once he was out of the pit in the palace, he didn't go back to his family. There were seven years of good. He didn't know if his dad was alive. Remember, is my dad still alive? And then there were a couple of years of famine before his family even came and he recognized them. And so it was a long time between the time that Jacob had been thrown into prison and the time, or the pit, and then slavery and then prison and the time he'd seen his family. And through that time, he had learned to forgive them. And now he'd lived with them in Egypt for a number of years in Goshen. And he said, what God, what you intended to harm me, God intended for good. Can you say that in your life? Can you see God's sovereign hand so at work in your life that you can utter those words? Then Joseph stayed in Egypt with his family, and he also was buried as he died. He was placed in a coffin in Egypt, but he asked them to carry his bones from that place to the place where Jacob was buried. Let me wrap up with a few thoughts as we close off the book of Genesis. God spoke and created everything by his powerful word. 
Humanity was granted with the perfect capacity to be able to worship, serve, and fellowship with God. God created us to worship Him, to serve Him, to work the world, and to fellowship with Him. We rebelled. We rebelled against God. Chapter 1 is, of course, about the powerful Word of God, Him being able to speak all things into existence. Chapter 2 is about God's authoritative Word. And in chapter 3, we choose to rebel against God's authority. We choose to rebel against God. We, humanity, chooses to throw what God had given us aside. In God cursing us, God promises that one day the serpent will strike at the offspring of the woman, but he'll only hit its heel, and the offspring of the woman will crush the serpent's head, beginning the messianic promise. Humanity continues to develop on the earth. Evil is so rampant that God destroys the earth by flood, saving Noah and his family, eight in all. Then we come to the Tower of Babel. Again, humanity enticed on evil to show God that they are better than him. God then confusing their language and spreading them out. But God's redemptive hand is always at work. First he promises Messiah. Then he saves Noah. Then he calls Abram. And though Abram lies about who his wife is, laughs at his old age that he can have a child, takes a maidservant upon himself in order to have an offspring, God still blesses him and grants him Isaac. Though Isaac again falls into the same sort of sin and lies about his wife is, saying that she is his sister, just like his dad did, God blesses Isaac, grants him Jacob and Esau. And though Jacob sins in a variety of ways, lying to his dad, lying to his brother, lying to his father-in-law, right? All of this mess that's there. God's redemptive hand continues to work so much so that you see all through Scripture that he is the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because God's redemptive plan cannot be thwarted or stopped until the point at just the right time where he sends his son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, comes and lives a sinless life through a line that's all messy, through a line filled with sin, but through a line of faith, a line where people believed that one day Messiah would come, a line where people believed that God would grant the promised land, a line where people believed that God was still in charge. And Jesus fulfilled the law in two ways. One, he was the fulfillment of all of the promise of the Messiah to come. And two, he never sinned. He never did anything wrong. At the end of his life, he gave his life up for us. And God's still redeeming. Is that not good news? We heard that in Aaron's testimony this morning. God is still redeeming. Jason, you guys can come up. God's redemptive plan is not done. It didn't finish with Jesus. God's redemptive plan is at work to this day. He's redeeming people unto himself from every language, tongue, and tribe. I mean, I sit and see some of you today. I remember the moment when God redeemed you. I remember when God gripped your heart. I remember when God changed your life. I remember when God called you to be his own. I remember when God adopted you into his family. I'm preaching at the Karen service this afternoon, and between now and then, I'll lead a Bible study with like 12 or 13 of the guys that will come this afternoon. And I've watched God just powerfully work in their lives. In fact, I sat here last weekend at a wedding with one of the men who've hired a number of their families, one of the Dutch guys here, and he has invested in their lives. His company every morning starts every workday with a devotional and prayer time with 60 employees or whatever he's got. 
And I shared with him the work of God I've seen in some of these young men and women's lives. I shared with him that the one couple who had been living together, who had a child out of wedlock, how when they heard the word of the Lord and what he was calling to, that, that the, the young man said, I need to go back and live with my parents until we are married. And I'll come back and forth every day to help you care for my child. And, and, and the, the owner of this company just sat with me, just tears filled his eyes. I said, this young man just looked at me one day and just said, Pastor, I need to follow Jesus. And when I baptized him back in Easter, it was just powerful, the work of God, because God's redeeming hand is at work. Is that not good news? His redeeming hand is greater than our sin. His redeeming hand is greater than our faltering. His redeeming hand is greater than the enemy. His redeeming hand is greater than anything the world can throw at him because God is the sovereign I am of the universe. He is God. God. And he loves to claim a people for himself. And look around this room. He's claiming people here for himself. And as I said earlier, before I started, even this week, I've been talking to people in Mexico, people in New Zealand. He's not just claiming people here. He's claiming people from every language, tongue, tribe, and custom. Because he's a God who loves to save. Will you pray with me? We thank you that you are redeeming God and that your redemption began at our fall when you had to curse us. And that Jesus, you have come and you have been able by your accomplished work and shed blood to guarantee, to guarantee a people for yourself. Thank you that so many of us sitting here this morning, we are part of that people. And we can't lay any claim to our salvation, but we can simply say thank you for your salvation in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.